I think we, we need to do beyond our microcosm is really wake up to the idea of planetary and human health being one. And we have to get beyond food as the only message. It is the gateway to how we fly our planes, how we drive our cars, how we use the resources, how we reuse the planetary resources writ large. So real organic has to embrace life systems as a whole to be real, because that's what I see. We see trees photosynthesizing, kelp dying, reefs changing. That's all part of one. And this idea that it's so easy as a human to look at your parcel and look at your bottom line and try to heal it without, and then drive 600 miles to ship your produce in a plastic bag to Montreal, that doesn't work. Welcome to The Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of The Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label to distinguish organic crops grown in healthy soils and organic livestock raised on well-managed pasture. You just heard from Mark Kimball of Essex Farm. It's a year-round, highly diversified CSA farm in upstate New York. Mark's wife and farming partner is Kristen Kimball. She's the author of my favorite farming books, The Dirty Life and Good Husbandry. I'm so excited to announce that Kristen is going to be a speaker at our upcoming conference at Churchtown Dairy on October 14th. That's just outside Hudson, New York. Kristen is so passionate about the need for more activist eaters to better support the local organic small farm movement that we're all a part of. So let's hear more from Mark and Kristen. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. Talking to Mark and Kristen Kimball, and we're just wedging this in between many workshops and their keynotes at the NOFA New Hampshire conference. So, hi, guys. Hi, It's Dave. so nice to be here. Yeah. So, uh, you asked, what are we talking about? And I don't know. So, we're, we're talking about your thoughts about food and farming, and, and I, I think that you're going to have some challenging thoughts about the Real Organic Project. Bring it on. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, you know, I keep farming more and realizing how yesterday I didn't like what, I don't like what I thought yesterday today over and over in my career. When I started farming, it was vegetables is what farming is. And then I think the next chapter was, oh, there needs to be meat and there needs to be fat and there needs to be grain. And I think now my current thinking is that in farming, we need to really include logging and house building and go far beyond food because it's a holistic planet. And so I'm looking at what we're doing at Essex Farm and thinking the next Essex Farm 4.0, we're sort of at the fourth major chapter as I see it. I want my life work to now go beyond food production. I wanna look at fuels, I wanna look at transportation in ways that we integrate them into the landscape. So that's my first, first takeaway from the, when I spend my days outside growing food is we need to expand the definition and integrate more life systems to create a healthy whole. Okay. No, no. Just a small project for the next 10 years. Yes. <laughs> it is a small project because there's 10 billion of us and we're awesome, right? So I still have tremendous hope. I think it's awesome that we get to be alive. I love every effort, whether it's conventional or organic, to try to create a healthier life. And I think at the bottom, sort of like you were just speaking about our neighbor, I think at the bottom, most people who are in any type of production, whether it's construction and plumbing or grain growing or logging, are doing their best. And, and I think that's there. And I, what I'm excited about is saying we can move a new bar up. And I think Real Organic is doing that. Can we move the organic bar up? 
But I think I want to take a full step backwards and say, land use will start to get healthy. When humans start to get healthy, they're interconnected, and it's not just what we eat. It's where we sleep, it's the sofas we build, the toxins, the health, the community, all, I think, go together. So that's my first, my first sort of opening line is, I hope that at organic farming conferences like here in New Hampshire, the discussion can go beyond microgreens. They can go beyond what we do in a glass house to what's the house made of. Yeah. Kristen, jump in. Okay. Um, I think the things that I've been thinking about lately uh, are how producers and consumers can work together to create a healthier overall food system. Um, I think that in the last few years, um, a lot of farmers that I know, our farm included, have really struggled with the larger forces of consolidation and industrialization in the food system. Um, those forces have always been there, but there's been an acceleration and a push toward a larger scale and, and industrialization on all levels of the food system. And I feel like my um, passion right now is figuring out ways to um, to survive the pressure uh, that those forces are, are putting on farms like us and try to be a beacon of possibility for small and mid-scale diversified sustainable farms who uh, need to hold the, this place until we have a better uh, a better overall structure in our system. Um, and the way I'm thinking about it right now is much more consumer oriented than producer oriented. Um, one percent of the country farms and everybody eats. Um, and the power really is uh, with the consumer to decide what they want their food system to look like. Um, and I feel some concern that your average consumer is losing touch with what food really is, that the constant exposure to advertisement and marketing um, makes people believe that food is what we find in packages, food is what has been processed, when really food is the stuff that you and I and you grow and comes from the dirt and can go to your table. So I'm interested in, in encouraging the skills that it takes for people to recognize that the big, broad base of their food pyramid should be real food that comes from the ground that they can buy directly from a producer and not what lines the very colorful and compelling aisles of our grocery store. Um, and if we can do that and, and teach people uh, the skills that they need to make that food convenient and healthy and delicious for them, then I think we all have a chance to uh, move the needle on, on a healthier system for everybody. Another small 10-year project. Yes. So <laughs> we, got, we got that in one year. You got it. You know, uh, we just had Fred Provenza on our book club uh, a couple nights ago. It was fantastic. And Fred has this, this vision that could only be described as spiritual or even religious that he had when he was dying of cancer, so he thought. And, and on top of years of depression, and suddenly, boom, he burst out and had a whole vision that everything is going to be okay. And he wasn't just speaking personally. And at the same time, people asked him questions about, well, what do you think is the nutritional difference of, of meat coming from confinement CAFOs compared to pasture? And he had a very detailed erudite uh, answer about, yes, we know, the science knows it's a huge difference. So it's like these two really different visions inhabiting this one person. And here we have two, 
different visions and having two people that I'm interviewing at the same time. So it's exciting. Who work on the same farm. On the same farm. <laughs> and we're, trying to, we're trying to craft a mission vision that works with what Kristen sees right now and what, what I see. Essex Farm 4.0, no mission vision yet. Kristen's, mine, very different. How does that look on 1,500 acres? How does that look on 15 million acres? And I think, I, I mean, I, I think that the, the tragedy here isn't that real organic needed to be created because originally organic was going to include soil. It didn't know about climate change enough to have it in the original legislation, but it should if it doesn't already. But this idea that we have to come up with a new way to communicate farm to people. Like you were just saying, you know, this, this idea of people eating whole food from farms is perfect, right? That will start people on the gateway to building their homes with farm materials as well. I think you're right. But right now with massive advertising against us, People don't know what organic means. People don't know what real organic means. People are now throwing glibly the word regenerative. I've never seen a sustainable farm in my life, period. I've, and regenerative is making it better than when I started. No way. We're doing a lot of great stuff on our farm. And Kristen's always wanted to remind me, she's like, when people eat the food we produce for a month or a year, they start saying things like, why am I running? Why am I able to feel good about life again? Why is my depression going? Because it's just food that didn't have a lot of chemistry with it. We, we're, at the, we're at the tip of the iceberg for even knowing how to produce great food. And so what I think needs to happen is we need to ask ourselves why we are such a disease-ridden culture. Why do people not care about junk food? I mean, I'll use today's lunch as an example. I <laughs> she elbowed me under the table, but there's no Edit. table. <laughs> Edit this. But why is it that organic producers of food are eating non-organic food most of their lives? Why, when you go into a store, are you buying Kerrygold well, butter? Why do you think that is? Well, I'm asking because I don't know for sure. It's certainly harder to go find good butter. But Kerrygold butter, as far as I know, is Irish butter that probably is from a conventional bunch of cows in Ireland. It's certainly transported a long way and has a carbon footprint that we don't want to think about. Where's the cows, right? Where's the beef? Where's the ones being raised well? And I think we're all part and parcel of a myopia, I am too, I drove a car here. I drive tractors in the field. Those are things that I know 500 years from now will not be considered generally recognized as safe. And we're doing them. And so it's gonna have to take, I think, a more radical approach for some of us to swing the needle. I don't think we can just go about driving our tractors with one pass tillage tools and solving organic or solving this bigger question. I think it's gonna take a radicalization of people's individual lifestyles to make this happen. What do you think? How do you think you want to change the needle? Because I think we have to stop buying sweatshop clothing and stop eating at fast food restaurants. I think the gateway drug is joy. And whether that is the joy of uh, personally connecting with the art of pulling food out of the ground or the universal joy that we feel when we have good food uh, on a table that's shared with um, friends and family. I think, uh, I think people react better to that carrot than the stick. So who had a better lunch? Let's talk about what we had for lunch. What did you have for lunch today? Let's just go right there. What did you have to eat for lunch today? I had sweet potatoes and a salad. Okay. Any calories? Yeah, it was delicious. Was there some calories in it? Mm -hmm. So I had, I, I looked at this, what was available, and I went to my cooler where I had sort of what our farm produces, and I took out two lamb steaks and cut them frozen with a knife and ate our sauerkraut yogurt. We're not selling it here. No, no, that's fine. I, but I think I get it. I get like it. I wanted to eat food that was nourishing to me and it was real food. And I looked at this, I mean, I'm still looking at the cookies because like every other human, a colorful cookie 
is attractive. I love that shit. Yeah. And I know that my body doesn't respond well to that. Yeah. It's not the same. I don't feel clear. I don't feel focused. I don't feel strong. Last month, basically all I've eaten is burger and butter and I felt great. And so, but that's taken a willful effort. And do you think I'm unhappy about that? It doesn't feel like a stick to me. It feels really fun. I think fun. that's, I mean, I've been married to you for 20 years, so I know where you are on the spectrum of <laughs> In general, normalcy. somewhere on the spectrum. <laughs> Any spectrum you want to talk about. Okay, fair. And so you are, you know, I think that was a radical act that you did. And it's not relatable to many people who don't really, they're not going to eat a raw lamb chop. In public? It's not so, about public, but how do we take baby steps then? Because it's so easy to get the food that doesn't nourish us into our bodies, I right? Think, I think how do you we, make the change? I think having a very acute awareness of how food makes you feel is probably the first step. That, you know, there is food that is uh, gratifying and then there's food that's satisfying. And the gratifying food is, uh, is, um, is a much easier sell. But the satisfying food is the food that really, truly nourishes us. And if we can get quiet enough to listen to those signals, um, I think we are naturally oriented to, uh, to better things. It's tough because we don't have a cu cultural tradition that supports that food. Uh, this is something I became aware of talking to Dan Barber. And he's looking at uh, different cultures and how different agriculture's evolved and there are these rotations and you don't get the rice without the soba and you know that it, it all has to go together and that became the food of that culture and it, it's good and it's good for the land and it's good for the people and we don't have that we we almost don't have a culture right and we just so the, the culture we have is fast food culture right. and we don't have any any of that uh, uh emotional structure to support us we we have to make choices yeah. And they're hard choices because we know that that cookie actually, I want, I did eat the cookie, right? <laughs> I ate, ate the, the cookie. cookie. <laughs> and I knew, did you inhale? I knew that, that, that it wouldn't make me feel good. I yeah. knew that. I knew I didn't want to eat it. Yeah. I wouldn't eat it at home. I'm here. Oh, well, it's right. my time out. I'll have the cookie. Of course. Well, of course. And, but, but. You know, I'm a, I'm relatively a food Nazi. I'm relatively yeah. the person who makes choices that are considered really extreme in our culture. It's like, yeah. you don't eat anything processed, yeah. you know? It's, well, I do. I eat cookies when I'm at conferences, <laughs> right? I still didn't dip down to the Doritos, but still. We can. Uh, well, can I say something Yeah, like that? rockin'. Because I have been thinking a lot lately about that connection between a food culture and uh a climate or a landscape or a region that we're growing in. And I think one of the things that people tend to like about belonging to our farm, where we grow a full diet year round for our membership, is that they are forced to connect to a food's localness and seasonality. And, you know, they don't just, they just don't eat lettuce in the winter because we don't grow lettuce in the winter. So they learn to eat a carrot salad in the, in the winter instead. And I think people find that really satisfying. And I think there's something very sort of hardwired in us it, as humans to be eating locally from a landscape um, that we that we live in. So you have built a community around your farm or a community has coalesced around your farm Both. and it has got a developing food culture. 
And like, so. we eat this. This well, is who and, we are. And, and it's actually yep. not because of us, but we do firewood. We do some logging for hardwoods. But it's moving beyond. Like, Chris McConnell went into shaping hardwoods from local wood. So it's actually going beyond food. And again, that's when I start to see, when you see a, a state like New Hampshire, where we are now, there's a lot of wooded hillsides that with good logging become a human product, right? And this idea of our community stretching beyond our first conceptions, right? That someone's now, Chad is logging with horses to provide wood for the community. We're making firewood for the community. Um, those, those ripples, I think, are because Kristen and I started with a cow within two weeks of when we moved to the farm. We didn't know that much about cows, but the idea of driving an hour to the supermarket was anathema to us. And it was like, well, let's get a cow. And it wasn't a perfect cow, but it was our first cow. Um, another thing that comes to mind here that for me is so important in all of this is, is the idea that health becomes so elusive, right? In, in our society, screens, caffeines, the whole deal makes it, makes it really easy to get sick and to not be healthy, to not feel like we are ourselves. And one of the things in the last few years, I've, I've had my share of sort of frustration at the modern myths, the burning diesel, the flying across the world. You've heard me rail against all these things. That finding a touchstone that reminds us how big the universe is for all of us is to me the beginning of health. It's not necessarily what you put in your mouth. It's just pinching yourself. We're right here. And we're not going to be here that long. And to me, there's this, that gave me the life force to slice a frozen steak for lunch was that I am here. And so the touchstone that we each have can be anything. It can be your religion. It can be your growing practices. It can be a, a pet. But the idea of first off being present to me is it's like, oh, gosh, the, the universe is bigger than I'll ever know. And then that gives me the courage, I think, to get excited about the idea that we can actually make these changes, that even if we lived in a city, in a tenement, there is a chance to find the miracle and magic of life. And that starts a series of questions that bring us to health. So that's, that's my sort of hopeful pitch is I think it's right here. And I think we're all terrified because health isn't something we buy. It isn't something elusive. We're born healthy. What do you think? I'm looking at your expression. I couldn't read it. I didn't get kicked under the table. So I'm like, I'm like, wait, where am I going here? What do you got? What do you think? I think, I think you're on the right track. I think that you're on a track. She that said Kristen never. Most people don't want to follow or don't have lives that would allow them to follow. But I think anytime that we can increase the connectedness of people to food or people and food to community, we're moving in a healthy direction. Um, and that's just, that's really my observation. My biggest takeaway from the last 20 years of what we've done at Essex Farm is that connectedness um, creates health and happiness. Connection is critical. It's not enough to offer good food. I, I, I believe this, that we have to create a community connected to that food. That's why I say, I think that, that it, at your farm, you are, you are actually creating the nucleus of a community that is about food and it, it, and people take that food and they eat it and they're healthier and their, their lives work better. But, uh, actually, I, I don't mean to say this in a way that no, go for it. I can't wait. <laughs> you got this. You are important to that. Both of you as individuals are important to that community. That's what communities are. They're about actual people. Yeah. And so, um, look, you guys both have a lot of juice, right? Obviously. And it's a great pleasure for me to talk with you. 
and and you bring that you sh you you are generous with your your vision and your energy and people are attracted they come and warm their hands on that fire and they learn something and that spreads and pretty soon somebody's warming their hands on that fire and it, and it, it grows so here's a question to kind of combine both of these visions or to wonder can you imagine that this replicates because that's you know we we have a problem with numbers yes right. the problem with numbers is that it matters very much to each of us personally and individually what the rest of us are doing. Yes. And the, the world goes to hell if people are doing really bad things, even if we're not. Mm -hmm. Right. I, and that's where I start, which is we are. Is that although Kristen says, Mark, don't be so negative. I'm not I'm inspired every day to work harder. But I know that in 100 years, we're going to look back at our production methods and go, gosh, the plastic we bought for fencing, the fuel we use for tillage. These are known detriments to civilization. I don't have to wait a hundred years for that realization. Agreed. And so then, then suddenly we're all in the same camp. Yeah. Then there isn't this us and them between big organic and little organic. There isn't this us and them between conventional and organic. It's we're all in this together. And that humbling part, I really wish I could say to you now that after 30 years of farming, I was doing the right thing. And then I would stand up big and you wouldn't see my face. And I'd be like, I can tell you how to farm. I can't. Yes. I don't have the solution. I don't like, even with horses, I don't like certain aspects of how we did our farming for 17 of the years we were there. There's lots of things that we're doing that we know to be detrimental. And that's the beginning place of community is to say, I need help. And that's what you're saying when we want to reach out to consumers and say, we need your help. We're asking for support and help, not just us to them, but each of us to each other, to you and to everyone. And what we're finding right now is our farm goes through one of the largest tectonic or earthquake shifts. We're changing a lot really fast right now. Is that people who we didn't ever hear from are hearing and seeing us and saying, in the way that we're shedding our energy and sharing our love for the being alive with the community, the people that have been quiet are coming to us and saying, I can't exist without what you produce. I can't exist without the connections to my neighbors. I can't exist without walking my kids on your land. How can I help? And they're saying how they can help. In One person showed up to cut our firewood for sugaring this year. Done. One person gave us $50,000 a year in perpetuity after they die to help people who can't afford our share. Those are big, significant changes for a mid-sized farm. What do you think? I'm going to throw, I gotta throw it to you mid-sentence because I'm, I'm just going. I'm on red send. <laughs> I want to refocus on the question that you that you asked, which was a numbers problem? Yes. What did you mean? So in the impossible hill that, that I find myself climbing, yes. it's impossible because as Elliot would say, we don't have a snowball's chance in hell, right? right? Because the forces arrayed against us, yeah. the unconscious of forces, they're not scheming how to no. destroy us. They don't care. They don't care. There's this addiction and it feeds itself. Mm -hmm. And, and it's huge. Yeah. And, and everywhere around the world that we look, when this, this, this force hits, this tidal wave, it washes away everything. We see that, that France is still struggling, no GMO, and, and we, you know, we want to keep the fast food out. But they're probably going to lose that because this is so compelling and addictive. Yeah. And, and so when I look at those numbers, yeah, I, I want to cry. Yeah. And and when I look at what we do, what talking to you, I know your farm. I've been there. When I look at the wonderful farms 
that that are doing something and growing good food and and yes better food than we got to eat and mm -hmm. and you see you see that people eat this and they get healthier and they're and they feel better about their lives i go well this works mm -hmm. so what what we're doing works and yet it doesn't get replicated nearly enough right and there's something against that we're struggling against and you know what i think of c.s lewis's book that hideous strength mm -hmm which was right. written during World War II, and it's about basically good versus evil. I hate to try and put it that way because it, I don't feel that, but I do feel that what we're against, what we contend with is that hideous strength. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's so self-destructive, and it's us, it's not them, we all yes. contend with this, right? I'm, right. Not, I'm not pointing a finger at them, I am yeah. saying that's a very bad example of what I hope our future is. I, I want it to be different. Yes. But I get it that we're all in this. And I yeah. am the first to say my farm is not a model. Right. Yeah. I really mean that. So yeah. I would say the same for us. So, I, so I, how wait, about, can I say one thing? No, I got to jump in here. What do you think? I was just going to say, this is how leaders are born. Because this is what Gandhi did when the English empire was crushing his home there needs to be more true leadership. And leadership is a very elusive thing in the modern world. That would be my answer, which is whether it's race leaders or environmental leaders, we need the kind of leadership we haven't seen. The leaders that are willing to walk across the country because of what they believe, the leaders who are willing to eat a raw steak at a NOFA conference and look like a fool with his spouse going, what are you doing? I, I'm not that gonna, I'm gonna be the clown laughing at the leader, but. Who is it going to actually say, we're going to walk the walk? And I think walking the walk requires introspection, strength, and then connection. And like you talked about, community. But without leaders and without healthy leaders, there is no chance. That's my first takeaway. Okay. I like the okay. That's a good, that's a good marital I'm okay. I'm trying to keep everything in my head right now. Um, <laughs> so... I hear what you're saying about the size of the badness. And I feel the size of the badness in our food system. But I don't believe that uh, the bad parts of this system are permanent. And I don't think they're problems without solutions. I think they're largely symptoms of late stage capitalism, which is what the world is existing in right now. And it's what happens when you pair a profit motive with food production while you ignore the environment and people's health. But I don't believe that that's a permanent system. I believe that's a system that can shift and that can change. And I think our job right now is to hold the space of possibility for a better system and to try to keep normalizing for people what good food is. Um, and the solution is probably... First of all, most broadly, a policy solution that we don't have the political will for in our country right now. Um, but we might at some point in the future. I believe at some point in the future we will. Um, so a combination of a change in, in policy a com and culture and, uh, and interest in the way that we eat. I have to wake up and believe that that's possible and that it's on the horizon somewhere and that our job is to steer toward it as much as we can and to hold a joyful light on what food can be. 
I mean, I like that. I mean, I think that I think we're on the same page. I think that, <laughs> that we need to eat our raw lamb and we need to look at policy and we need to, like you said, I, I call it treading water instead of holding space. But I think Essex Farm is a great example of people getting really strong treading water. When you get to tread water, you realize you can try to keep your head this far up or you can just put your nose up. But in either case, you're alive and you realize that if you stop treading water, you drown. And when I describe the farm and what we've our impact on the community and vice versa, it is truly a mutual thing. We are not the ones who inspired our community. Our community inspired us and gave us so much at every step. And we're given the leadership role in our community, but we're also completely indebted to everyone around us who has helped. And that comes in every single day. But this idea of treading water, leadership is knowing that land is this direction. I'm going to start swimming from the shipwreck here. What I don't have is the clarity that we all should go that. Like you said, carrot or stick. Do we change policy? Do we eat raw steaks? Where do we want to swim? But the nice, the, the, the consolation as an individual in treading water is I'm getting stronger. It feels really good to tread water. And if you're just there, you're like, wow, we shipwrecked. We're done. And then you realize that there's 50 other people treading water. That's Essex Farm. And we're getting stronger. And, some, and people do swim. They go one direction. I go, why do they swim that way? There's sharks there. And there's a, a rocky cliff there. And then someone's going to find a shore to land on. And that's the dream that you're speaking of. To me, there is hope just in that. And I guess what I think, I think we, we need to do beyond our microcosm is really wake up to the idea of planetary and human health being one. And we have to get beyond food as the only message. It is the gateway to how we fly our planes, how we drive our cars, how we use the resources, how we reuse the planetary resources writ large. So real organic has to embrace life systems as a whole to be real, because that's what I see. We see trees photosynthesizing, kelp dying, reefs changing. That's all part of one. And this idea that it's so easy as a human to look at your parcel and look at your bottom line and try to heal it without and then drive 600 miles to ship your produce in a plastic bag to Montreal, that doesn't work. And I think we know it doesn't work and that's why we're treading water. And I think the brave of us will start to walk the walk. And I'm not ready to do that. That feels terrifying to not buy sweatshop t-shirts. That feels really hard to me. I am not anything about making fabric. Rawhide. Rawhide, right? But really, that's... You're going to be on your own in your little debris hut. And then Chris will pat me with this little consolation, like, you go ahead and live in your debris hut with your rawhide because I can't stand the smell. And that's the beginning of something. And I'm not there yet. But that's where... Divorce. And that's divorce. (laughs) So that's where we are. Yeah, yeah, So stay tuned. Stay tuned because a year from now, people are going to know a lot more. There are no answers. There are only questions. But there are directions. I mean, there are consequences of the questions. Huge. You know, we do we do make choices. It's just we know we won't have the final answer. We won't have a solution because that's not how it works out for humans in reality. It's not. It it has to come from individuals and communities finding the synergy. And I think I think the racial and socioeconomic and gender inclusiveness right now that's being spoken in liberal circles is one of the healthiest things that could happen to farming. Because again, you can't just say it's about micromix for Blue Hill. It's about all of us. You can't say during a pandemic, we're going to teach chefs to grow vegetables. You need to say we're bringing all of our food to the hungry people now. It needs to be a radicalization that's not going to fit into a neat, tidy university setting like this. And I think that's the part of it is one of the brave things we need to do more of, and we do a little of it now, is Show up with a hundred dozen eggs somewhere and give them away with no strings attached. Show up with the gateway to something that works for us and say, I'm sharing this with you. 
Dave, you can have this with no strings attached and see the ripple effect of our behavior. And I think if we're nervous and scared and afraid, which all of us are, we will keep perpetuating the destruction to our society. Yeah. Just what I was thinking about last night in bed, sleepless. I was. Really? Really? Yeah. And so it, so it starts personal, but then you ask for help and you say, can you help me? I'm scared to be more generous with my food because our bottom line looks bad. And you're like, yeah, I can help you out. And what our, what our farm has shown is Jean-Paul gave us a ton of sweet potatoes our second year because we didn't do a, have a good yield. And he's like, just take them. Right? Yes. People just gave us, we've been given tens of thousands of dollars of food from other farmers. We're like, you're having a hard year. Help yourself. Can I ask you to state what it was that was going through your mind in your sleepless state? Uh do you remember Earth's Best Baby Food? Years ago, they started, it was the first organic yeah. baby food company. Yeah. And it started in Vermont, uh, Ronnie and Arnie Cost, two, two brothers. And they had a big grand celebration. And this was before Alar and all of that. Okay. And they had the governor, I think it was Madeline Kunin, came and spoke. And they had the head buyer from Hannaford Brothers come and, and speak. And it was all this like rainbows and isn't this wonderful? I mean, they, they're wonderful people. And then... The, the head buyer gets up and he says, well, you know, I just know that 98% of human motivation is fear and greed. And it was like, oh, <laughs> it's like, who let him in? And, and you know, it was Sorry, really, it, but it was so perfect because this was organic trying to go into the marketplace. Hannaford's was a major chain. At that yes. point, these chains weren't buying anything organic at all. And it was like, yeah, Grow up kids, this is what the real world is like. And so I can't remember if it was Arnie or Ronnie, honestly, but one of the brothers got up and he said, well, I'd like to talk about the other 2%, which is love. And it was like, I mean, I, you know, it, my heart opened. And I also thought, good save, yeah. right? And, and, but it was true. It was true that, that that was where they were coming from. They really were. And they were trying to take this into being a serious economic enterprise, but they also were motivated by love, not by fear and greed. And indeed, they ended up losing the company. It's it's now owned by Haynes or Heinz or one, whatever, yes. one of those one of those large, nameless megacorps, right? And I was thinking about it. I was thinking about fear and greed. And I was thinking about love. And I was thinking about how much I am motivated by fear and greed that we all are. And just that fear. And, and, you know, don't be a sucker. Don't be a schmuck, right? How do you make this work? I have a part that very much wants to figure out how do I make a living at this? And, and it's a very serious adult little kid. Right. <laughs> well said. You know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then I thought about the 2% of love. And I thought about, you know, this times that I find generosity, which is genuinely a motivator. And I, I just go like, well, whatever, let it go. And everything actually works better, yeah. although you might lose the company. Right. Yes. And that, I yeah. think, I think I describe generosity as what you're uncomfortable to do with your love and your generosity. Like, it, it's like what you're uncomfortable to do with your love, which is like, it feels different to go to someone who you know is suffering and say, would you like a cup of coffee? Right. It, it, you have to change your routine. You've got a busy family life and whatever. And you have to like walk out to the bar and somebody's milking and bring them something. And I think you're exactly right. Is looking for that 2% requires the discipline of making it a daily and then moment by moment practice, right? And I think that's really the bottom line here is if we start acting out of compassion, 
then there's no part of me that wants to wear this t-shirt. Because I know enough about what factories look like from having been in them. I know enough of what the developing world is going through in terms of low, low labor costs, right? This whole idea that this t-shirt is $7. And so then I think we start making decisions. Yeah. And in the meantime, we're like, oh, I have to wear jeans. I have to look right for the conference, right? Yeah. It's going to be it's going to be skins. We have to wear clothes. Skins. We have to wear clothes. Yeah. I, I put on jeans. I skins. never wear jeans, but it's my farmer costume yeah. for yeah. conferences. Right. And so I, th I think we're getting to something, which is I like the fact that you and you both are smiling. Is We're, we're contemplating the end of human existence. Every species has gone extinct. So it's like 98% of us have gone extinct over it, the dinosaurs, the plants, the, the fungi. We, we go extinct. And the question is, why would we want to stay alive? Because it's so awesome to have a sense of humor. We don't know if trees have a sense of humor or not. But I think that's going to be a huge part of the leadership here, which is the irony. The, 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 the discontent can all be carried in a loving place. And I think, it, I, think we, I think the three of us, the three million of us, the three billion of us, need to uncouple from what's killing us. And we know it. We know the answer, and so I think it's taking those little teeny steps of generosity, of, of asking for help. Hey, I need help feeling generous. I need help dealing with my trauma. I need help with this, and realizing that there are other people with us, and that it doesn't have to be a single-issue thing. So it doesn't have to just be an organic tomato or an organic steak. It can be, let's go for a walk. And then you start to realize what soil is. And you start to realize how we build things or drive in things. And I think that holistic part is going to be a really massive shift. Again, it's fairly easy to just say we'd like to have a local food shed. To have a local life shed, I think, has to be the direction. And then all of a sudden, food will make sense. So we will be planting food on the tops of roofs here at this campus. That we'll start looking creatively at every little angle to see how can I keep this place warm in the winter without depending on fossil fuels. And I think we're going to do it. I mean, I think that that 2% is enough. Yeah. And again, with a, with, a, with a good measure of laughter, right? There has to be, when I'm sitting there in my skins at the next conference. Oh, boy. <laughs> you can laugh. You can divorce me. <laughs> and I can lose. I can be swimming in the wrong direction. And then I can say, that was bad. Kristen, will you come back to me? And be like, if you take off the skins, right? And I think we're going to have to do, the other thing that I think is beautiful about humanity is you don't write well without writing poorly. Yes. You don't farm well without farming poorly. Yeah. You don't run well without crawling poorly. And that's something we are trained to do. We are trained to fail. And that's how we've been able to succeed against any other species. Now let's look at that failure and say, it's fine. I love you and you have failed as a farmer. I love you and you have failed as a wife. You're also the most successful farmer and wife I can imagine, right? You're amazingly talented people. And in those two truths, we start to be relieved from the fear. I want to hear, but I just want to say one thing in response, which is the Real Organic Project was never imagined by me as being just about farming, because organic movement was not just about farming. Exactly. That's not where we came from. That's not where I came from and not where anyone I knew who was part of that came from. It was a lifestyle. And it got, it was about changing everything. Yes. We, we were growing out of a, a, a discontent with with a certain reality yes. that we just went, everything is wrong. Yeah. And, and, you know, of course it started with Vietnam and it was like, we're being lied to. And as Jake Guest said, we suddenly realized we weren't just being lied to about the war, we were being lied to about everything. So, I, you know, for me, that is a big part of Real Organic Project is Real Organic was a social movement. It was not just an agricultural movement. Interesting. Brilliant. 
I think that's such a helpful full circle, right? Is that I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So I'm sorry, Kristen. I don't think I had much to add on that. <laughs> on that note, I I think my struggle is to uh, not be overwhelmed by the size of the problem or my position inside of that problem, and to do what I can within my circle of influence to move things in the right direction, which is not going to be wearing buckskin. Personally. No, but but what you do is way more powerful than buckskin. And, and I think in getting to read your writing at any time in my life, whenever you've written, you have a transcendent ability with words to bring people into the emotional space that we're talking about. And your storytelling workshop was phenomenal to remind all of us that impacting the heart or whatever that set of feelings we want to call is, is the beginning of change. And the number of people that read Kristen's books and become farmers. I met is, a couple today who... Oh, they're here. And that's because you wrote what you believe. And they're happy that they did it. So that always makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, some, some come to us complaining. <laughs> they didn't go, oh, look, you ruined my life by getting me to do this. But it, yeah. I think that, the you know, I really at one point thought that everyone should become a vegetable grower. That that was the be all and the end all. My heroes were all the yeah. Northeast vegetable growers. And it's also about writing beautifully. And it's creating art in our where we are. Not where we're not, but also imagining where we're not. And so I think, I think you don't have to wear buckskin to create that leadership that I think we all need. And I think that that leadership is the bravery, in your case, to write for me to wear buckskin and do a somersault at a presentation that each of us needs to ask, not what our superpower is, but what our graceful humility is that we want to share with others. And then I think suddenly you start seeing, as we've seen in our tiny little failed community, how much unbelievable success has happened on a personal level where members came to us and said, I had never met my neighbors until I walked into your non-store. People collect their food from us at 20 below. We have no shelter. And at that point, you have to say, I'm cold. <laughs> and you're like, who are you? And you're like, oh, I live next door to you. They'd never met. Because yeah. that's America. You don't meet your neighbors. And so it takes audacious insanity, incredible poetry, to start bringing together these disparate forces, which is each individual and saying, hey, we're, we're all a part of one. Sure. So I would just add about the buckskin thing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know? like that your accent just went a little Southern. We started, <laughs> the buckskin thing. We started to have, you know, clothing made responsibly by people who were paid a living wage in this country, thanks to a terrible fire in New York City 100 years ago in which a lot of people died because it was a terrible place and it was locked and they couldn't get out when the fire came. And that led to a labor movement and to laws in OSHA that really changed all of that. And that led to companies moving all of the garment industry to Vietnam and China and Sri Lanka in order to make $7 t-shirts again, totally irresponsibly, totally in a, in a, carnivorous way eating the workers so but it is possible to make a $40 t-shirt a $30 t-shirt that was really actually was responsibly made right I don't know about regeneratively made but responsibly yeah. made. right and we I, start there that's right I think I think about that question with food a lot these days because when we charge the true cost of what it takes to produce our food ethically and in a way that's good for the environment and for our our the fabric of our rural society and the people who work for us the price of that food if we're just being honest and looking at it is out of reach for 
most people. And so how do we come up with a way to bridge that gap between what people can pay and what responsible ethical production truly costs? And, and, and I think there's traction there. I mean, there's ways that we can figure that question out. Well, and one of them is so obvious, just like with when you're talking about t-shirts and cost, the idea that wearing something more than twice for a lot of people is like, yeah. mm -hmm. oh, you can wear this till it's completely worn out. The same is true with food. 40% of food after the farm gate is wasted. Imagine what it is before the farm gate especially in small vegetable operations, but also in big farms too, how much is wasted in the field. And so the solution is right in front of us. We have enough food. We need to change our production methods and be willing to eat the food that I used to hate being associated with organic, which is it's okay to have a carrot with a blemish. I don't really want to sell that to you as the best carrot we grow, but we have some blemished carrots this year where they had a little worm get into them at about mid height. And it's terrible. But it's a carrot. But it's a carrot, it's and we, they would be culled. They wouldn't make any grocery store grade B. They just right. wouldn't make it. And there's some of the best tasting carrots we've grown. I don't want that to be the standard of carrot. That was a disastrous crop for us. Right. But it's still an edible food, and it's affordable. It's free because they're being left in the field. So I think there's a lot of room. I don't think we're, given that we have so much resources and so much access to energy of the physical kind, I think we're less boxed in than we believe. I think that fear comes right up and we're like, oh, we couldn't do it. And it used to be that everybody had two pairs of pants and two shirts. Right. Right. I mean, you know, yeah. 100, right. 150 years ago, people didn't have, have a lot of clothes. Right. Yeah. yeah. Socks were, you know, bonus points. Right. right? So, so I think that, that, you know, if we start to rethink what is a given, what is wealth, what is, what is needed to live, yeah. and you come up with very different ideas. And, and it wasn't that the people felt deprived. Right. right. They had one shirt to wear while they were washing the other. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the most important skills for young farmers is to recalibrate what a quality of life is. Yeah. Um, because most people are not going to be making a middle class living as farmers, um, at least the farmers that I know. Um, and so recalibrating what you consider a successful life, what you consider a happy life, and not taking the bait of comparison um, to, to sort of look at what you have versus what people who work normal jobs have. Yeah. I, I, that's spot on. I'm thinking about the, uh, the navigation system we use to get here. You know, it says recalculating when you turn down the dirt road that's actually more fun recalculating that's what we need to do right the dirt road leads you to a little trout stream that you had no idea existed it's off of the main highways mm -hmm. i mean the, the yes the analogies are infinite but the idea yeah. that that that's more accessible than we realize to recalibrate yeah um this is great let's do it i love it starts right here all right all right. I, look, I'd like to keep talking for a couple hours, but we're about to. I, I, I already broke everything I promised. This will be very quick. So yeah, well, you knew that though. Yeah, this is awesome. Thank you both very much. This was this was great to talk. Thank you. Um, and I, I know people are going to appreciate it. And so it'll, it, you know, you you've challenged so much. So I mean, in in a good way, challenging thinking and inspiring to think different thoughts. That's all we need to do. I mean, we need to look uh, and, and recalculate. We need to recalculate and think, well, maybe it doesn't need to be that way. We just took it for granted. Yeah. And, and, and the beautiful thing that we have at our disposal still, and it won't be this case in a thousand years, but we still have it, is when you look out at the landscapes beyond urban centers, there is room for improvement. 
right? Mm -hmm. If you came to me right now and needed five acres to farm, it's yours. Nobody is actively working on the land with their soul and their heart and their bodies. So if you need little corners to start eroding this agribusiness, as we call it, which we're part of and you're part of, it's already right there. But you have to walk away from where you are to some unknown, scary place. And when young farmers say to us, there's no land out there, I say, au contraire, there's a lot of land out there, but you're going to need to speak to owners and you're going to need to develop a new way of re-inhabiting that landscape, but it's right there. And that's what makes me feel really hopeful is that even though we are planting corn hedgerow to hedgerow, I know no agribusiness that would say, oh yeah, you, you can't have 10 acres here. We can do it. And so, it's, so that's the beginning where someone says, oh, we're doing a massive cover crop experiment on 50 acres. Oh, look at that, right? There's room. There's right, space. Right. The 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 the, Cal, the California farms, organic farms I visited, they'll have like, you know, five, ten acres. They just seed the vegetables for the community. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're just like help yourselves. Wow. And and you know, they're farming much bigger acreage for for sale. Yeah. But it's just yeah. this is just for their neighbors. Farmers yeah. are inherently generous people who want to share what we do with people yeah. in our community. Yeah. yeah. You rock. Thank you so right. much. Thank, Thank you, you very so much. much. This Good. was Have terrific. a great day. All right. I really want to take the time today to thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. This movement is growing because you are subscribing and sharing these podcasts with your friends. If you leave us a rating and a review, that also helps others find us too. Please check out the video version of this interview at realorganicproject.org or on our YouTube channel. Next week, we'll be sharing a talk given by Drew Rivers from our Real Organic Conference at EcoFarm last January. I'm inspired by Drew every time I hear her speak. You can hear more from Full Belly Farmers, Drew and Paul Muller this Thursday, August 31st at the Real Organic Project event that is hosted by chef and author Jessie Cool. This is at her Flea Street Cafe in Menlo Park, California. Mm -hmm.